of May uh, will feature Bob Lawson, Bob Black, and the Low Down Brass Band. And that was uh, What's Up by the Four Brunettes, who are called the Four Non-Blondes. And uh, today is the birthday of Ho Chi Minh, Malcolm X, and Lorraine Hansberry. So everybody stay tuned here on the left end of your dial. We're going to have a real good time. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, Michael. Michael. <laughs> nice to be together. Uh, yeah, great start. Yes. <laughs> uh, Obama Center, we talked about it just last week. And just to, to talk about the timeliness of the Live from the Heartland show. It got its first big approval from the Chicago Plan Commission this past week. Not without some demonstrating going on. No, not at all. And I guess Mary Mitchell uh, wrote a plea to uh, the former organizer, uh, President Obama, to pay attention to the community. Is that it's right? actually a pretty great uh, letter to the editor by Sylvia Ewing. Um, oh, yeah? I posted on my Facebook site because it really says, come on, can't we use our skills? as organizers and strategists and technicians to come up with an agreement that everyone can buy into. It was a really top-notch letter. That's good. That's great. Um, let's see, what else? We've got... Uh, uh, we had a meeting uh, Wednesday night, Network 49. Uh, we had the Community Safety Task Force. Now, that's a different thing. Oh, yeah, we did. We talked about the consent decree. That's right. And this consent decree is something that's really important. And uh, the presenter was on fire. Sheila Beatty. Sheila Beatty from Northwestern. Network 49 is part of the complaint, uh, the uh, lawsuit to get a consent decree. If you want to find out more about how to get plugged in, there's a meeting tomorrow afternoon at South of the Border at 4 p.m. It's a great little restaurant to have a meeting in. On Morse Avenue. Uh, on Morse Avenue, right mm -hmm. next to the L. And uh, the Community Safety Task Force has really been dogged in their pursuit of community and citizen input into this whole process. And as you know from the headlines this past week, it's beginning to heat up as various proposals get put on the table. Today is uh, Loyola Dunes work day to remove invasive species. If you're listening to this, find your garden gloves, get your boots on, and head over to the dunes after the show. They'll be working until noon at the Loyola Dunes uh, restoration project. Also today, celebrating our lakefront is a um, presentation by um, uh, William Swislow. He is looking at the carvings that exist all on the lakefront. I suppose our own out of the wall um, would fit into that, except it's not a carving. But he has a presentation at the Edge Theater this afternoon, 5451 North Broadway, from 2 to 3.30. And right now, going on at Sullivan High School is a 5K run supporting uh, dreamers and undocumented students who are headed to college. And tomorrow, for all you runners, there will be the Spring Chase at the Heartland Cafe. Meet at 8 o'clock in the morning. We walk to the lake. We do a fun 5K. You know, this week, the farm bill turned into an immigration bill. Ooh. Or something. It was such a strange development. The former bipartisan agreement around farm bill that helps both rural and urban areas has disintegrated. Another great sign of leadership and by the current Republican leadership. They just can't get their act together, and it's further dividing the country. Yep, it, it, true that, true that, and it, it's also, uh, it's, it's small. It's just plain old small. Uh, right now, uh, all across the country is something called the uh, Poor People's Campaign. And on Monday, our neighbors at Just Harvest are putting a bus together. They still had a couple seats as of yesterday, but the bus leaves the community kitchen 7.30 a.m. Monday to go down to Springfield and be counted. Um, 
The, the Moral Mondays campaign, which we talked about for the last couple of years, has uh, evolved into or joined tracks with the Poor People's Campaign, and there's like a 40-day movement of nonviolent direct action and voter mobilization that was launched last week. So if you want to put your body where your mouth is on these issues, um, go down to Springfield on Monday uh, with uh, the Just, Har uh, Just Harvest and all the other folks who will be joining hands there. You know, 50 years after we passed fair housing laws, we are still struggling with open housing in Chicago, oh. a much uh, embattled project That's for right. Jefferson Park designed to help veterans and other small households have transportation-oriented housing that's affordable. And Jefferson Park has been killed once again, this time by a state agency that funds these kind of activities. Um, it's a very sad uh, state of affairs. Neighbors for Affordable Housing in Jefferson Park protested the Ida meeting. Um, it's really pretty unconscionable that in 2018, uh, we're still afraid of our neighbors moving into our neighborhood, but that's what it comes down to. It's incredible, and I saw today the uh, transit-oriented development piece that's going in next to the Morris L stop. Sure wouldn't want to be the neighbors on the other side of that concrete wall that's going up. It's going to be five stories high, and I don't think it's going to be affordable. Well, it's not a TOD project. It's mostly a parking lot for uh, the, the, the mainland across the street. That's, that's a particular development that actually violates what TOD development's trying to I do. Like that you, I like that you turn the main stage into the mainland. So <laughs> Heartland, Morseland, mainland. If you want to All learn right. more about how to keep up on watching government, the BGA is having a workshop this week on Wednesday the 23rd uh, at St. John's Episcopal Church. It's from 7 to 9 p.m. Uh, go to BGA at bettergov.org to sign up and get more information. Um, one other thing that's going on today, a Medicare for All town hall meeting at the APWU Local One Union Hall, 4217 South Halstead. This is uh, voices uh, discussing how we as a state can make a move towards universal health care system. Uh, speakers will be Latessa Wallace, Alderman Carlos Rosa, and uh, fellow activists and organizers. Same day, later. We Rise Up, How Revolutionary Black Women Lead. That's going to be at Chicago State University in the library at the fourth floor. That time we're going to hear from Senator Nina Turner, who is the Our Revolution president, and uh, again, Latessa Wallace, and that time we'll be joined by State Rep. Carol Ammons. These are good folks, and uh, that's a lot of good ac activity. We're going to bring in our first guest uh, pretty quickly, I think. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Farm Bill. Um, okay. Just to, you know, to fill in a moment here because uh, what disturbs me about this, people in Chicago hear Farm Bill and they figure it's helping farmers down south or something. And of course, those are the same farmers that are being potentially threatened by various uh, tariffs and, and other things that are being done with China. China used to be the biggest soybean buyer and now they're going to buy it off in South America because why? Because Trump's winning in tariffs. Uh, so now we have this whammy. Farm Bill was always predicated on this coalition of uh, folks who need food stamps. That's right. Um, and uh, farmers who were struggling in rural areas. And now that coalition that has lasted for generations has been totally destroyed. And I think it's a real shame. Urban residents ought to be paying attention to the Farm Bill and figuring out how we can get this thing back on track. You got that right. Okay, we're going to introduce our first guest, and Tom, I'm going to turn that over to you. 
You did such a great job on the farm bill that we're going to have you introduce uh, Bob Black, who's coming up right now. Bob Black was uh, a dear old friend, and along with his wonderful photographer wife, Olga Lopez, um, has um, for over 50 years been one of the best photographers in Chicago. And I had this question at the end, but I think I'm going to start with this one before we get into some of your history, Bob. Do photographers ever retire? Well, certainly you put in enough time you could, but I suspect the camera still falls in your hands from time to time. Yes, it does. Some, some photographers do. It uh, all depends on the individual. Uh, myself, I still shoot gigs from time to time. You know, I've, I've had a few health problems lately, but uh, when I get better, I'll still be shooting gigs. And right now, I shoot the flowers coming up in the yard. Oh, spring finally made it. Yeah, Chicago, right, huh? right. <laughs> just, you, just get myself. So, are you one of those photographers of spring that that closes real close in on yeah, the, the yeah. things that are popping up? Yeah, uh -huh. I, I have a macro lens and I can get close to it. Yeah. So, our excuse for bringing you into the show is. Oh, you're good. Um, you were hired in 1968. Yes, I and was. You happen to be the first African American photographer hired by the Sun Times. Sun, that's right. And mm -hmm. I have to ask you just to start off. What was that like? What were you hoping to do when you decided to pick up a camera? Were you expecting to work for a major metropolitan daily newspaper? And what did it take to get that gig? I was hoping that I could do something like that. Uh, my initial hope and uh, dream was to work for a publication like Life Magazine because at that time my uh, um, role model was Gordon Parks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. who was a staff photographer at, at Life Magazine. And I was really uh, wrapped up in that because every week when Life came out, I'd rush to the newsstand, and I, before I even picked it up off the newsstand, I would thumb through it and see if he had done anything. And if he had, then I would buy the magazine. <laughs> and then Good the, not to waste the cash. Right. And then the next thing I would do is check the masthead. To make sure his name was still there, <laughs> you know? yeah. and uh, so yeah. But Gordon Parks was my uh, role model, and so I was hoping to do something like that. But then, as time began to move on, I realized that perhaps working for life wasn't going to be possible. So I said, "Well, let me see if I can't do something in the news business." And so my first. Uh, real job in there was uh, with the Chicago Daily Defender. How about that? Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So my good friend Bobby Sinstack mm -hmm. uh, was the one who opened the door for me there. And I was he able to... He opened the door for so many. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yes, he did. So I, uh, I was able to work there as a staffer. And I was there for two years. And then all of a sudden, the door opened at the Sun-Times. In... In the in, in convening time, I was also a member of the Illinois National Guard. I was part of a photo unit that uh, documented the National Guard's activities. And in that photo unit was a, a guy named Bob Langer, wow. who was a photographer at the Tribune. Yes. And uh, he later came to the Sun-Times. And so when the Sun-Times was ready to hire uh, an African-American person. Bob Langer said, I got the guy for you. 
<laughs> uh, because the Daily News had already opened the door with John Tweedle. Yes. He was the very first. And so when the Sun-Times felt that, okay, we need to do something, because the Civil Rights era was, was coming very uh, visible, very, very powerful, and oftentimes the, the, um, they, they, they would get reporters coming from uh, papers who didn't know or didn't understand what it was all about. They really didn't. Yeah. And they would ask kind of silly questions. And so the kind of you to put it that way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so and so the civil rights leaders would tell the papers, you guys gotta send us somebody who understand what this is all about. You know, and then during that time it began to change across the country, mm -hmm. really. Uh, and so uh, the Sun-Times said, well, we need to get us a, somebody, an African-American photographer, because John Tweedle had set the tone. He saw, he, they saw through him and his work that, well, okay, these guys can shoot just like the rest of us, sometimes even better. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so uh, uh, Bob Langer was instrumental in opening the door to get me in there. So as I understand it, uh, 68 is when you start working for the Sun-Times, and of course 68 was a headline-cold <laughs> year. Yeah. What was it like covering the West Side? Oh boy, it was crazy. Um, that was my, f it wasn't exactly my first time covering a rioted situation, because I, I had it when I was working at the Defender mm -hmm. as well. <laughs> but um, this was slightly the, the, the the reason it was happening was different than when it happened before. Before it was because of a hydrant that, would, that the cops closed down. <laughs> In this case, it was because one of their, the leaders of the, of the black communities around the country had been taken out, had been assassinated. So it hurt people to their very core. And uh, everybody, uh, uh, all the leaders were on the street trying to tell people to calm down, stay calm. And it did work for a while, but after a while, everybody they just didn't know. They just exploded. Yeah. And uh, so it was, it was, I was in a situation where um, I had to report it visually. And at the same time, I said, you know, I don't want to just, all my pictures just to be showing uh, the destruction going on, but it it had to be done. But I had to shoot other things as well. Did you find the impact. other things to shoot? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, people just uh, being uh, uh, standing by, you know, concerned and afraid. Yeah. You know, so uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, it, it was, it was very difficult. But I, after a while, uh, my uh, photojournalistic instincts kicked in mm -hmm. and then I began to document the story as it's supposed to be documented uh, you don't worry about your your own safety because sometimes I had to get in there and get close to it uh, and you just don't think about it until it's all over and you think so why was I in there Bob <laughs> let me ask you uh, you mentioned uh, Gordon Park and uh, I'm just curious to know, as, a, as someone who likes to shoot pictures himself, who are your other influences? And I'm reminded that uh, 
uh, a fellow we met, uh, quite a photographer himself, Art Shea, oh, yes. just passed away. Oh, yes. So, yes. Uh, you know, he's, he's an influence on a lot of us. But tell us who, who else inspired you in addition to Gordon uh, Parks. Yes, I know. I, I knew Art Shea. He was a great, great guy. Great guy. Yes, he was. Um, well, there was Roy D. Carava. Uh, he uh, documented Harlan. Uh, who else? Uh, James Van Der Zee. Uh, let's see, uh, and and uh, Albert Eisenstack, uh, all all of those guys. Nina Lean, she was a life photographer, you know. Uh, so I, I I studied the work of all of these uh, photographers in order to try to find my own style, and uh, and so it was uh, it was a number of them, but those were just a few. How would you describe your own style? Well. Uh, I try very carefully not to use flash hardly at all, except as a a booster to the available light situation. You know, maybe bouncing it off the wall just to try to heighten the light when there's not much of it there. Uh, but normally, if I could shoot at available light, I would do that. Sometimes. To, to, to a fault, as Tom would know. <laughs> <laughs> These guys go way back. <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was a chuckle of many years now. Listen, I, I just wanted to say, we, we started with asking you about 68 because mm -hmm. uh, this being 50 years since and the times being what they are now makes us reflective of what we've won, what we've lost, what we're in the midst of losing our grip on. Um, and that sort of thing. Maybe what other events and stories that you've covered since '68? Specifically, you can use the West Side as a as a, a viewfinder, but go beyond. What are the memorable stories that you've gotten to cover in the last 50 years? <laughs> I guess it's too much to put into a couple minutes. But what stands out? Uh, what gave you great pause? Gave you chills to be there. Well, you know, uh, sometimes it's it's the simple things. It's not just the big events, right. which you know, in and of themselves, you know, have their has its own you know uh, 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 situation. But most of the time, it was it's just those small incident. But what most people would think insignificant. But for instance, I uh, I covered a guy. Uh, he was an old Cuban cigar maker. Mm -hmm. I forgot how I found out about him. But I went to his home, I think I, just to do a, a regular you know, shot, but then when I got there, I said, oh, this guy is interesting. He, was a, he had a lot of character in his face, and he actually made the cigars in the basement of his home. <laughs> and so I which, went back. Which, what neighborhood was he in? I can't remember. It was on the northwest side. Northwest side. Okay. Somewhere on the northwest like side. Like Humboldt Park. Maybe. Uh, maybe a little bit. Where those Cubans hide out. Yeah, maybe a little. <laughs> yeah, it could have been somewhere in that area. Uh, okay. And uh, but I went to his home, and I, I spent a day with him, watching him roll the cigars and everything. It's too uh, much. Yeah, yeah. Do you smoke cigars? No, I don't <laughs> smoke at all. <laughs> I still got some. Him Cuban cigars. <laughs> I have been You're to no Cuba. Good, Michael. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, so that, and then another opportunity came. A, a friend of mine uh, told me about uh, 
uh, one of his aunts who took care of her dad, who was at that time was coming up to be 111. Wow. And I said, 111? He said, yeah. So I, I went by to see him and visited, and I saw where he was very lucid. You know, he was very, uh, very alert. And so I was amazed at this. And uh, uh, he would talk about the days where, uh, when the automobiles first came into play, and they, people would talk about, oh, those not gonna last long. <laughs> <laughs> Do you miss film in this digital age? No, not really. Uh, no, not really. Well, I, uh, I was one of, at the time the digital age came in, I was an old timer by that time. Uh, as opposed to when I came in, the 35 millimeter camera was new. Was new. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the old timers of that day, they could not grasp that 35 millimeter. They were still, in many cases, yeah. still holding on to the 4x5 speed graphic. Wow. They were still shooting with that. And uh, they just had a difficult time. They just didn't want to have anything to do with that 35. Wow. What and is that reminiscent of? <laughs> <laughs> but when, I, when um, digital came in, I was an old-timer. But when I saw what it could do, I took to it. Yeah. To Hard it. not to. Yeah, I said, oh, this is nice. I like this. I'm sitting here with three photographer men actually four i got lynn over here shooting oh, video and, and, and one photographer woman that's right i'm sorry lynn. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty amazing impressive that you all decide to uh see the world that way i'm, I'm going to ask you one of these questions before uh -huh. michael gets back at you uh -huh. um and that is um who's the best celebrity or politician you ever shot man or woman Oh boy, this is gonna get me in trouble. Or your favorite? Nah, nah, we're uh, a small uh, station. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody, none of those people celebrity, are listening. Celebrity. Um, it, it was a, it was it was a number of celebrities. Some of them were good. Some of them were very uh, accommodating. Uh, uh, Mark Anthony. I never had a close encounter with him, but I did remember uh, they were starting to restrict us from. Um, Shooting only three, the first three songs. Oh, there was a reason for that, but I won't get into it. They Thank still you. do that some places. Uh, yeah, they, yeah. And so, and some, some of the entertainers, when they hit the stage, they would, they understood that, so they would come out really going. Uh -huh. Mark Anthony was one of them. Are we talking Mark Anthony? Uh, the 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 singer, the the, 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 uh, the Puerto Rican. J-Lo? Yeah, he used to be the husband right. of J-Lo. Okay, thanks. Yeah. He was, he, was <laughs> a great, he, he was a great entertainer, and he hit he the stage. Great, yes. he, he, went, he came on full blast, and he went from one side to the other. So he was accommodating in that way. Um, some other people, uh, I had an opportunity to work with Sir George Schulte oh, at the Chicago nice. Symphony. Yes. He was great. He was great. I, I, I went to a rehearsal and photographed him in rehearsal, and even after rehearsal. We got some shots of him, you know, going over the score before, you know, so he was, he was good. And uh, even the people there at the symphony center, they were, they were very accommodating. You know, I had a spot, special spot, 
doing the doing the actual concerts behind the organ pipes, oh. in the where you could actually wow. look down on on the wow. conductor, and <laughs> so I was able to do that. But I was very quiet, it was, and nobody knew I was there. And uh, it worked like a charm. Didn't accidentally bump into a pipe. Or no. You know, everybody has a smartphone. They take pictures. Oh. They post them on Facebook. Um, what advice would you give the amateur photographer who does not feel the need for a professional to take the picture? You know, what, what, what grates you when you see people's amateur shots that they just, they had done this or done that? <laughs> do, you, do you have any quick advice you could give an aspiring photographer in this digital age? Well... Fill the frame. Don't sit. Don't stand back where everybody is really small. Get in close. Excellent. Fill the frame, and that's that's the basic advice. That I like when, that. When you do that, then that's ninety percent. Bob, do you still uh, do you shoot only digital? Do you ever use film? I ask this because I was just at a an event called Photo Mercado, which were people with little magazines and zines to nice books. Mm -hmm. And there was great enthusiasm for these uh, people who were selling used old film, mm -hmm. you know, out-of-date film. And all these people were shooting film as well as digital. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, do you ever hit the film? No. Okay. Uh, the only reason for that is, <laughs> the, the, the only, only reason for that is that it's difficult to shoot film now because... Uh, now you need to be able to get the film processed, which, you know, you take it someplace, you can get it processed uh, without having prints made. You don't need prints. Five bucks uh, at Central Camera. Oh, is it? Okay. For a roll of film. All right. And then... You then, guys can do that later. <laughs> then, then you have to have a scanning device that'll scan that image into the computer. So if you got that, that you, can, you can shoot film. It's not as convenient as digital, but... If you got a scanning device attached to your computer, then you, yeah, you can still shoot film. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm not opposed to it at all. I still got a bunch of film cameras that are still workable. Yeah. <laughs> Bob Black, photographer, um, thank you so much for joining us and sharing a few stories of the many that would fill up a book if someone wants to do one someday. That's right. And uh, It's a pleasure your, to have you. Well, thank you. Your, uh, photographer partner, Olga Lopez, thank you so much for continuing to pick up that camera and share what you see with the rest of the world. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Right on. To live okay. from the Heartland on WLUW 88.7 okay. FM. Please like us on Facebook or check out our archives on YouTube slash Heartwood Media. Okay.
Hey, hey, you are back with Live from the Heartland. This is uh, Katie Hogan with my partners Michael James and Tom Clark doing the best we can to expose you to interesting people doing fascinating things. We just finished with Bob Black, great photographer from uh, Chicago. We now have Bob Lawson, union organizer, uh, union leader, organizer, friend of Paul Booth's, which is part of why we're here today. Tomorrow is the memorial here in Chicago, remembering Paul Booth. Welcome back to the show, Bob Lawson. Thanks. It's always great to be back here at the, live from the heartland. Not in the heartland. Yes, right. <laughs> we are in the heartland region. Okay. <laughs> we do that. We get expansive about it. Um, the breadbasket of the country and the toolbox of the world. Before we uh, do just a little bit about Paul Booth, um, let's get your rundown of the effects <laughs> the effects of Trump on labor um, you know there's been a commercial airing lately with the guys uh, asking each other are unions important have you seen that commercial no I have oh, you love gotta it. check it oh. out it's on all you gotta watch a lot of sports yeah, on TV watch regular TV <laughs> anyway it, two it's, guys talk they're talking talk about unions, yeah. you know, are they important? Yes, they are. And then two union guys kind of walk in, and the one guy was a little skeptical when the waitress asked, can we get you anything else? He says, yeah, we're all right, but get those two guys a drink, get a those beer. Two. More important than ever is the bottom line on are unions important. So that commercial is playing. Uh, it's interesting to me when we have less than 10% of the working workforce organized that that's on TV. Talk to us about current times and what you've spent your life doing. Um, well, I, I think one of the things that's uh, happening is uh, attack on unions is really intensifying under Trump um, as the attempt to increase inequality. Um, they've, they've figured out uh, the corporate titans and the right wing that have been on a 30-year attempt to destroy labor um, sees this as their uh, opportunity that there's a Supreme Court case that's going to be uh, determined pretty soon. It's called the Janus case. Um, what it will likely do is uh, prohibit unions from charging fees for people who don't want to be members but that get the services of unions. Right. Um, and the reason that this case is coming is because right now public sector unions are the largest, most effective part of the labor movement since they've been able to destroy uh, private sector unions. And so this is an attempt, um, along with the various state attempts, like since your Governor Rauner has been in office, the main goal of why there's no budget in the state is because he wants to destroy AFSCME and the Chicago Teachers Union That's right. uh, because of the voice they give to everyday people. So I think that attack is continuing. There's also now um, it just got leaked or exposed that the Kochs and their, their group have a whole new strategy and set of talking points and stuff that they've sent to their network of organizations around the country about how to undermine unions and go, like in the state of Washington and Oregon, they're going door to door to union members and telling them you can still get the benefits of your union and you don't have to pay anything, just sign this card. Um, so they're doing that. So I think the attempt, both on the one hand, has been to uh, decrease the power of unions institutionally, and on the other hand, it's made more and more people realize that we need some kind of a voice mm -hmm. uh, to stand up to uh, this power. Yeah, one voice we've been hearing a lot of is teachers, and from a lot of red states, um, why suddenly are teachers stepping up? 
I think a, a couple things. Um, one is that this whole attack on public education, um, and it's not just from the Trump people, it's also from Democrats for Education Reform, which is really to privatize uh, public education, which has been one of the best avenues in this country to create a democratic society. And, and I think, the middle class. And the middle class. And I think teachers are at the forefront of that, both personally, where they as professionals end up with student debt and then don't make enough money to survive. And but secondly, is they look, they don't have they don't have textbooks, you know, they don't have desks in their classrooms. And at the same time these legislatures are cutting taxes on corporations and on the wealthy and then we don't have any money for public education and the teachers feel it because people don't go into teaching to get rich they go in because they care about kids they have a passion and when that, this happens that as much of the anger about this is the disrespect for public education and the inability to do your job as a caring professional as it is about pay and benefits for teachers. And I think all of us are feeling that in a, a lot of ways as the whole public sector is being shrunk and uh, wealth inequality is increasing at a tremendous pace. Bob, uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of credit uh, to the Chicago Teachers Union for the, the way they've, uh, you know, performed. And I saw an interview, I'm not sure who it was with, but it was someone talking about a discussion with Karen Lewis and how important she has been to this uh, outbreak of teacher resistance around the country. Any comments on that? Uh, yeah, I think it was probably Diane Ravage. That's that, who it is, I uh, want to be sure. Who was one of the, um, she had been in the, uh, I think the first Bush administration and was a big fan of charter schools and right. privatization. And she realized that she had gotten hoodwinked and now she's been a real leader on democratizing and keeping uh, public education. And as she pointed out that the Chicago Teachers Union, particularly under Karen Lewis, has said that look, we're teachers, we're a union, we have some power. But our power is not just for our own pay and benefits. It's also for class sizes. It's also for books. It's also for why are kids of color in crumbling schools? Why are the, all the AP classes in one set of schools and not in other sets of schools? And it sort of set a standard where teachers are bargaining not just for their own pay and benefits, but for the common good. And I think that that, and you know, there's the symbolism, the red t-shirts that the yeah. CTU wore, and now it's red for Ed everywhere. everywhere. Right. And it's connecting the inner city, you know, the mainly Chicago Teachers Union, which has, you know, the, most of the kids in Chicago are kids of color, um, with the red states, because everybody who's in education cares about public education and about the kids. It's really an excellent opportunity. Uh, that yes. whole discussion nationwide. Right. Um, to, to the notion of Karen Lewis and our mayoral election, uh, four years ago she was running a very uh, lively campaign and had to step down for medical issues and that's when Chewy stepped up. Uh, the mayor currently has 10 challengers and counting. Uh, clearly we're going to have to winnow that down for anything meaningful to occur, but uh, how did labor and Karen Lewis um, affect or influence the opposition to Rahm Emanuel in your eyes? Well, <clears throat> it seems to me from not being uh, integrally involved, but that the fact that the teachers union highlighted 
the fact that Rahm, even as a, as a Democrat, was undermining communities of color. Right. and that the teachers union actually reached out to parents and communities was able to highlight the fact that this regardless of him being a democrat that there's differences right. and that you can be a, a corporate person and still be a democrat and i think the fact that the teachers union pulled off the strike in conjunction with parents when with support of students That's right. and have support all over highlighted the contradiction before we start talking about Paul Booth, um, there are some people who say that one reason why uh, union leadership, the union organizing has um, gone down is that the move over to the public sector changed that dynamic. For working people to organize, to go after management, to get better wages, better benefits is one thing. But in this case, management is taxpayers. Uh, you could say it's the governor, but the governor can't do anything without the taxpayers paying the bill. And it just changed the relationship, if you will. How do you respond to people who feel that public sector unions aren't the same thing as the traditional trade unions that we revere from getting us out of the Depression and, and really improving the middle class chances in this country? Uh, that's a, a lengthier conversation than we have time for, but I, I, I think the, the thing about public sector unions and about unions in general is there a voice for working people and the voice can be in a lot of different areas that if you see like just what you were talking about or even what Karen Lewis and AFSME is talking about here is the public sector unions are advocating for a graduated income tax they're they're advocating for fair taxation and better public services and often that I think that um, the shift, and it wasn't really a shift to public sector, it was the fact that yeah. because of the way the law had been interpreted on the private sector side, it got harder and harder and harder for people in the private sector to organize. It wasn't like there was less organizing, it was less victories, and then with globalization and the change in manufacturing, that side shrank that actually the public sector unions grew right. in the coming out of the civil rights movement and out of the, the anti-war movement because the private sector unions were sh paving the way for the middle class and at the time there was like both patronage for public sector unions and low pay and shoddy services. So a lot of the same impulses for social I guess socially progressive unionism was what drove the uh, the public sector organizing. So I don't think it's a contradiction. I do think that public sector unions need to be clear that they're not just about their own members because their own members deliver services and care about those services as all workers care about the quality of their work. And so I don't think it's a contradiction. I think it's a, a fact of power. Excellent question. Glad for that clarification. So you're in town today because of a memorial for Paul Booth. Um, who was he? Why are, why are people coming together to remember his work? Yeah, it, it falls right into actually this transition. Right. Clever. Um, <laughs> that uh, that uh, Paul Booth was um, first originally a leader in Students for a Democratic Society in the very first anti-war movement against the war in Vietnam. Um, he was very young, 
forward. Which we have the, two members of sitting at this table, right. Michael. Yeah, no, and Paul. And we're, Paul was a part of the Oakland West Oakland Community Project in the summer of '65, and I remember being saddened that this guy I was working with had gone off back to Chicago to be the national secretary of SDS. Until you joined him. Right. <laughs> so, but so he had been active in SDS. Then, as he moved to Chicago. He was active in the fight against the Crosstown Expressway, and that older people will remember it was a, a way of uniting sort of the, the northwest side communities with the west side communities in a, a community organization. And Paul Winsky. Yeah. Yeah. They, they actually won that fight, as I recall, yep. and that I knew of Paul then. Um, and I, I finally started working with Paul around the question of public sector unionizing. Um, Paul had gone to work with AFSCME, um, American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, um, when they were organizing state employees under then Governor Walker, yeah. um, who uh, created an executive order saying that state employees could have the right to collective bargaining. Um, and so this was a major breakthrough, and Paul was one of the uh, leaders in AFSCME on that organizing campaign. And I met him a little later. Um, I'd met his wife first, Heather Booth, who's had a major impact on the country and on Chicago as an as a organizer and as a, a leader. But um, <clears throat> she and I were working together on an organization called the Citizen Labor Energy Coalition, which was an attempt to link the the labor movement with some of the uh, community organizations that had grown out of the new left across the country and we were fighting against deregulation of energy at the time that <clears throat> when Jane Byrne got elected uh, mayor in Chicago she said and lied that she was going to give public employees the right to uh, collective bargaining and so I moved over to AFSCME to help do that because that seemed like really exciting and I I worked with Paul Booth there, we eventually, not under Jane Byrne, when Harold Washington got elected and AFSCME was a major player in that, um, we were able to organize the city employees, the county employees, and around the suburbs, and that Paul was a major leader both in winning the contract but envisioning that this was a role for public sector unions. He eventually went on uh, to move to D.C. and become a leader of AFSCME organizing nationally. And then, I mean, I think the thing that, some of the things that were unique about Paul in, in uh, um, my relationship with him, one is he was forward thinking. Like, we were one of the very first places that used computers in organizing. Um, and two, is that he created space within, he understood that you needed institutions to have power, and he created space in institutions for people like me who don't do that well in institutions. We need someone to sort of cover for us in the institutions, and he continually was making space for a lot of young organizers. That's such an important point, Bob. It, how, did, how did he do that? Partly, I don't know. I mean, he was a very, he's a very smart guy, right. and he's a very personable guy. Right. And he knew how to build relationships with people. So and he just always made sure there was room at the table. He made sure, and that he, he would recognize what I <clears throat> would call talent and, and passion. 
among people that not necessarily would would fit into the the model of looking well a union you know god that's like you know given the stereotype of unions and create space and he continued to do that many of the the new organizations that are going on now jobs with justice the restaurant opportunity center yeah. things like that paul was a major player in dc at creating space in the labor movement to fund that and the, the memorial for Paul is tomorrow at the SEIU Hall? Yeah, at, at uh, Healthcare, 22, Illinois, Indiana. 2232 North, uh, South Halston. Just off Okay, see you all there tomorrow. Yeah. Bob, we want to thank you for getting up so early. I know you just flew in from the great West Coast, <laughs> and you're now in the great city of Chicago, and we're glad to have you here for the summer. Great, thank on, you. On right the on. fresh coast. <laughs> thank you, Bob Lawson, <laughs> to have you again. It's a treat. And now... Yeah. Lowdown Brass? Yeah. Lowdown Brass Band, here it comes. <laughs> Rockin', that was very nice. I never heard you guys before, but that's because I'm old <laughs> and I don't keep up with things. The Lowdown Brass Band welcome members. Thank you. Uh, we're looking that's at we've got Bella, we've got Shane, and we got David. That's right. No last names. Oh. <laughs> one, one, one name basis. All right, right all right. Like Prince. All right, where are you guys hail from? Let's start with that. I'm a I'm a Chicago boy. I can um, tell by that hawk's head. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm David, so I'm from Chicago. Thank you. Bella, I was born in New York, but I'm a Chicago man, you know. All right. All right. Uh, Shane, I'm from a small town in Texas, but been in Chicago for 17 years. Can we express our sorrow for what Texas is going through yeah, today? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Uh, without going too much further than yeah, that, yeah, but absolutely. thank you for representing. Yeah. All right. How'd you guys get together and find each other? Just kind of uh, hanging in the scene in Chicago. Um, you know, it's a it's a music mecca. It's a jazz mecca. A lot of us have a jazz background. Mm -hmm. So uh, horn players, um, just kind of in the scene, going to different jam sessions. Um, you know, like-minded cats just kind of find each other, and you know, became. Uh, Drinking buddies and you know it always starts with yeah, that. Yeah, like you, you didn't run into each other in New Orleans watching some brass band. <laughs> no, but it, we kind of we all kind of had that experience independently of each other. So there's uh, all, there's this deep love in New Orleans music, and that's basically the source of it, it all. Sounds like it. I heard um, it, but it's different. Yeah, I mean we're in Chicago, so we we've got, we've got these influences of hip hop and. In uh, reggae and soul and, and all that How other stuff. How many people in the group when you go out and perform or play in the streets? 
you know, it kind of varies depending on, uh, you know, who who's can, home. who's, who's right. home and, yeah, yeah. and who's how much money the they want to pay us. But, uh, <laughs> no, when we're, when we're full strength, we're 10, 10 deep. Ooh. Wow. But I think, yeah. uh, on how the, many tubas? Yeah. Just never one. enough. One Sousa. No, it's not a tuba. It's Sousa. There <laughs> you go. There you go. All right. How would you describe your music if, to someone who'd never heard it? We are a um, a hip hop street a hip hop street beat brass band. Can Bra- we hear a little of it? Okay. Yeah. 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 So absolutely. We got these instruments here. I, I know. We've got. I, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's a very so, small room. For yeah. Brass. Em- embrace it. So um, yeah. So like we're coming out of this New Orleans tradition of second line music. Mm-hmm. Um, so very jazz influenced, but like I said, we we put our own Chicago spin on it. And yeah, we'll give you a little snippet of, of what we do. Like, you know, like Shane was saying, sometimes we're 10 piece, sometimes we're eight piece. But here today, we're, <laughs> we're three piece. Maybe the smallest, uh, smallest we've Yeah, so done two it, horns so. and, and an MC. Um, so it's, it's going to be uh, quite a departure from what's on the record, but maybe we can give it to you. But we'll lead them to the record anyway. Yeah, give, it, give it in a way that uh, will be unique and fresh for us as well. So we'll see how it goes here. You always got to love those first notes of the day on live radio. Oh, yeah. 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 <coughs> it's, you don't have to be ready. Whoa. Yeah. All right, I tried not to eat it too much. This is, a, this is real music. It's time to wake up and greet Saturday morning, folks. You ready? Bill is already maxing Nothing to be enough But still it's a satisfaction This is the math Look at my flaws when I'm rapping Mad but I'm laughing My goal is to keep snapping Asking the Lord something I promised to keep the gift Told me to let him have it I told him I wouldn't miss That's that's the problem of properly singing better The point is to give him hell A point of writing this letter So if I worry that's something to keep me hungry Or scary to even wonder where dreams are go to bury ya There ain't another So sit and just take a number Making every moment matter no matter I didn't hurry Not so ordinary Just another heavy thinking If I rule the world I would think the whole is steady Look at everything I'm telling you I tell them every day The temperature could vary But there ain't no other way Come on Yeah. 
Axe is critical flavor to keep it liquor. Do the job, then catch it some R&R. When I'm with her on my way to deliver with sign seal. Spirit, no mind games. Even on wrong songs, you hear it. Yo, please, this how every day go. You can never pay for it. Where the mountain of money pay souls to y'all. I'm out on my brain scars. They tatted the frame. Nah, not a dilemma, y'all. But the names are diamond in the rough. Going star from the boulevard. Cause I was handed, made me humble a day. Say the best, best for last. Ass to give it my all fast. The run up, put the crown in the bag and the stash. Just let me issue monologues on my behalf. We could pull up on the Ave if you long gas. Party crash in the house, got him going Mad Max like a person's last chance for the dividends. song that we were played when you came in it's called uh, grind it out is uh, just broke out on youtube am i right yeah yeah a new um uh a new uh a relationship with uh spill magazine ah. uh a toronto-based uh magazine and uh, uh music site um but yeah it's um a first in a series of what we're calling the container series so we built uh we built so where do stage, people go to find it um lowdown brass band um youtube channel uh huh. Um, or you can go to the Spill Magazine um, uh, dot com website. Um, but yeah, we built uh, a roughshod uh, stage on top of two shipping containers on the west side. <laughs> so, filming videos. so you know, if you build it, they will come. That's the idea. Amen. So. Amen. Where are you playing next? We want to people to see you because, folks, if you're just uh, coming in on this, this is this is one third of this band yeah. <laughs> that right. woke up Maybe. this morning. <laughs> yeah. Maybe is right. So where 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 to? Our next big show in Chicago is going to be June, I believe it's third at Due Division Fest. Uh, we play at seven thirty p.m. Due Division. If you've never been to that festival, it's one of the great Chicago street festivals. Uh, Due Division, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. We're, we're honored to play and and uh, open up right after us is going to be a great uh, Afrobeat band called Anti Ballas. Nice. Yeah. And and your next big non-Chicago show. Uh, can we say something, or do we have to keep it under wraps? Uh, yeah. Again, yeah, no one's listening. Uh, I think we got <laughs> under wraps Just stay tuned, then. We have a big tour coming up uh, at the end of June. Actually, we have several tours coming up this summer to kind of uh, release. We're still touring Lowdown, the Lowdown Breaks release, which came out in January. Um, so we're going to be heading uh, out to the East Coast, doing some shows in New York City, and uh, back up into Montreal and Canada. Nice. Um, and then at the end of the summer, we're headed uh, west, and we're going to Colorado, uh, and then kind of making our way to the west coast to Portland. We're playing in um, Salt Lake, uh, uh, let's see, Park City, Utah, uh, and then heading uh, to Portland and Seattle, and then flying there to play to Alaska. Sweet. Uh, before we come back home. So it's going to be looking forward yeah, to it. Yeah. Oh, we're real happy to have you out there representing Chicago. Yep, yep. I have a niece who's in a second line down in New Orleans, and I could see her group 
easily go on a line, except the rat would throw them off a little bit. <laughs> you know. I, I think it's something you ought to try to introduce to them. <laughs> there yeah. we go. Amen. Well, we, I can see it going down one of those. Yeah, it does. You know, we, with a little bit of shout-out going along off the brass. Yeah, cool. you know, we, as, as we said earlier, when we first started, we kind of were just kind of emulating our heroes down in New Orleans, that music. And I kind of feel like the way the band has progressed is kind of a lot the same way that American music has progressed. You know, we kind of took that, the things from New Orleans and kind of tried to emulate them. The stuff that came out of Congo Square and that whole American experience, this really has to do with, it's so unique to us because of what happened uh, with slavery and, and how it has affected really every single everything. genre of, of American music. Absolutely. That rhythm right. is in everything. It's the basis of everything. In the same way um, that that's happened with American music, it's the same way the band has kind of progressed, you know, that same start, but we kept that same African influence in the rhythm and just kind of started, started adding the things that we listen to on a daily basis, like hip hop and uh, soul and R&B and gospel and jazz and reggae and dance hall and we tried to say like death you know metal. why why does a brass death metal why does a brass <laughs> band have to sound exactly the same every time and so we're trying to kind of push the genre forward a little and bit. we also have a good friend down in New Orleans called Ricky B and he's kind of one of the spearhead guys of you know New Orleans balance music and which definitely plays with brass bands and second line so you know we have a little bit of you know guidance in that area so yeah. you know so that 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 was my question actually is this incredible blend of street beat and music right. and bringing it all together totally. which is really this bridging the cultural divide. That's what we're trying and to I do here it. at Lowdown. Right. Okay, give us your uh, shout out where we can find you again. Uh, well, you can find us uh, on lowdownbrassman.com. You can find all of our shows there. Of course, we're on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, check us out on Bandcamp, SoundCloud. Uh, June 3rd, we'll be at Do Division Fest, Chicago. Come out and support. We'd love to see the family in the house. And, uh, you know, just help us spread the LDB gospel. Yeah, put us Amen. On thank put you, on man. Your Spotify playlist. Thank you, man. For the last minute here, I want to thank everyone for joining us. Bob Black, Bob Larson, and the Lowdown Brass Band. Uh, next week, we have uh, uh, Sherry Morado for the London Sunday Market and Marilyn Katz and filmmaker Abby Reese. Many thanks to Lynn Horman and Weiss, Andrew Moreno, Dan Kugler, and to my colleagues here, Jenny Holden and Michael Jones. Please do good in the world. The world needs all the good that you do. All power to the people. Hey. Low down, but the flow so good. Can't say it all, but the logo good. Low down, but the flow so good. Can't say it all, but the logo could.